Welcome to Step Up, the podcast where we learn to advocate like a woman. I'm your host, Ellen Troxclair. Each week, we talk to a different leader about how she became active in policy and politics. Whether it's joining an organization or running for office, I hope you come away feeling not only supported and inspired, but determined to step up and be a part of shaping your community and country. Hi, I'm Ellen Trox-Claire, and you're listening to Step Up, How to Advocate Like a Woman. I have Mandy Gunasekra here with me today. Uh, she is so impressive. So you are a climate and energy strategist and, and communicator. You were a presidential appointee to the EPA uh, and have since started Energy 45, which is a nonprofit dedicated to informing the public about energy, um, environmental, and economic gains that we've made under this administration. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Great so to be here. tell us how you, I mean, presidential appointee, that sounds pretty big. How, <laughs> did, <laughs> how do you do that? Well, um, I had worked in D.C. I, at that time, had been there for about five years post-law school. So I went to law school, did internships during undergrad and law school, and had an interest in working in Washington, D.C. And I'm an attorney by trade. Mm -hmm. And so I had worked on policy and council initiatives that ultimately led me to working at the Environment and Public Works Committee. Mm. And um, during 2015 and 2016, I led the oversight of EPA regulatory overreach. So when President Trump won and they started doing the transition work and trying to figure out um, his approach to implementing his vision at administrative agencies, I was involved in coming up with some of the transition materials and setting out those administrative goals because of the work Work I had been doing, which was talking about why the Obama approach was wrong, talking to the people who were harmed by regulatory overreach, and in that process, learning what could actually work in terms of fulfilling the mission of EPA, but not overstepping those really important barriers. Mm -hmm. um, so a combination of experience, knowing a lot of people, and uh, the the team from the Environment and Public Works Committee, a lot of us ended up going over and working in EPA because we had been working firsthand on the issues that were at the top of the ticket. Um, one of those being repealing and replacing the Clean Power Plan, getting the President or getting the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, adjusting CAFE standards, and pairing back a lot of the egregious overregulation that had predominantly occurred under the auspices of EPA and its mission. Hmm. When I was doing research for my book, which is also called Step Up, How to Advocate Like a Woman, I looked at um, some of the data about, you know, you hear uh, Greta Thun Thunberg, mm -hmm. you know, talk, go to the, have this amazing platform at, at the UN and, and talk about how the world is going to end in just a few short years and um, how this is a crisis and and we're not paying enough attention attention to, you know, the 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 climate and um, doing everything that we can to protect the environment. And I think protecting the environment is something that we can all yeah. agree on. Like we all live on the same earth and we all want it to stay beautiful, not just for our generation, but yes. for future generations to come. Um, but the deeper I dug into it, it, it um, and when you, <laughs> and you look at uh, women in third world countries and how they're faring with the, the lack of energy that they have, I mean, they would, they, they don't really 
they wouldn't really care where their energy comes from as long as they had energy, right? They're walking miles um, each way to collect water for their family in very dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Um, they are cooking indoors over open fires, which is uh, exposing them to carcin- all kinds of carcinogens. Yeah. Um, and so when you kind of look at the, the state of women around the world and women in those countries that are really the 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 brunt of kind of running a household is falling upon them their lives would be immeasurably improved by access to energy um and so it just seems somehow to me not i i don't know if ironic is the right word but just strange that the um privileged world is is so focused on you know, making minuscule differences in, you know, emissions or or whatever it is and kind of leaving the rest of the world that doesn't have access to energy, kind of just throwing them under the bus. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head um, in terms of the dynamic playing out at the international level and increasingly here in the United States. And when you talk about third world countries in the developing world, um, if they were to have access to a reliable source of energy, it would change their lives for the better and it would change the environment for the better. Mm. Um, we are a green country because we are a wealthy country. We're not wealthy because we're green. It's the total inverse of, uh, of, of that, that thought. And what you find is when you have access to a stable, reliable, and affordable source of energy, um, you can create a stable, reliable economy. Mm. And that enables the things that we in this country take advantage of. Renewable energy sources, they alone cannot fuel a successful economy. Um, Here in the United States, just for example, the electricity that's actually consumed, renewable energy, talking mostly wind and solar, provides less than 7% of electricity consumed. Can you imagine if we tried to have an economy um, that only had access to 7% of the total energy that we actually use. It just, it, it wouldn't happen, it mm-hmm. couldn't exist. Um, and you know, if you don't have access to a stable economy um, and you don't have that access to the type of technologies that allow you to have safe food, um, safe water and cleaner air, then the level and, and health of your life and those around you, it's significantly diminished. And there's also cost implications that you have to consider. It's really expensive to try and attain that and somebody bears the burden of that cost and the people who it will fall upon are the ratepayers and the mm-hmm. taxpayers um, and not necessarily the the or, or the, the elite individuals who are often out there advocating these policies um, they make above a certain threshold where they wouldn't be bothered if they had to say pay 15 to 20 percent more for the electricity they consume it wouldn't mm. impact them right but it would impact um, you know, people who live near or at or even below the poverty, poverty line, line that spend a much larger, larger portion of their take-home income on energy today, much less what it would look like in costs in, um, you know, some degree of a renewable energy future. So, I mean, what's the what's the answer then? Because if we can get a little bit of electricity from wind and solar, that's great, and it, it would be well, it would be much greater if it, if they could do it if they could compete it within the free market. Um, but what is kind of what is what is the answer then? Just stop the subsidies and see if they can compete, or what does the future hold? The answer is. It, 
you, you, we need to ensure that we're making decisions that allow for a diverse source of energy. Um, and you know, we can have wind and solar um, because there's times that it makes a lot of sense to have the power generated on the grid, but we also need to ensure that we are not pairing or we're not making decisions that degrade the availability of coal, oil, and natural gas because we need those as a baseload source and nuclear as well. Um, so it's, it's ensuring we maintain some measure of balance um, from a policy perspective and don't allow distortions that have occurred and, and are well documented mm -hmm. um, to undercut maintenance of a reliable grid. One thing that I was surprised to find out about on the Austin City Council was this idea of, you know, we would we would enter into these contracts or people would with with renewable providers, energy providers, or people could maybe opt on their bill. I think there was an option to to like opt into the, to a green ener greener energy option, um, you know, which in on one hand, you think, okay, well, if they're willing to pay pay more for it, mm -hmm. great, go for it. Yeah. Um, but then I found out that they're really just buying credits. It's like they're buying the the energy that 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 is going to that person's house who opted into the green energy program mm -hmm. is still coming from the same non renewable sources that everybody that the rest of the city of Austin is getting their energy from. Mm -hmm. They're basically just paying for. A, a credit to offset the emissions. And it's really a strange way, and it's almost false advertising, yeah, I think. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's it, Well, and you're kind of opening up uh, uh, like the philosophy of how you set regulatory, regulatory standards and then allow for people who set those standards to comply. And this use of credits as a means to meet a standard that you could never meet in the real world, uh -huh. but you have this crediting system that allows you to say, we're going to be 50% uh, renewable energy. Um, well, exactly. On, that, and on, that's, and that's what they say. It, or, we, you know, they set this uh, the very aggressive, we're going to be 100% renewable that, by the state or 50% renewable yeah. by the state. And but yeah, you, so go on. Sorry, but no, <laughs> I no, that's right. But, you. but, you're on but in reality, you're you're not you're not increasing the amount of renewable energy in the area. You're just right. subsidizing some other interest that sells these credits. And what does it actually achieve? And um, what is actually a credit? Are they planting a tree? It depends. It, it can be that. It okay. can be planting a tree. It can be facilities that have co-firing operations where, um, you know, there's all different types of way that you can generate these credits. Um, but it is, it's very different than what people probably have in mind when they think, oh, I'm buying into this green energy reality, which they're not. They're buying into a really complex um, crediting system that has uh, questionable impacts on the environment writ large. So your job as a, an administrator at the EPA, you mentioned that you have to, you were balancing a lot of different interests, right? You um, were charged with putting in place or enforcing, uh, you know, reasonable regulatory rules that were that were designed to protect the environment mm -hmm. and, and um, prohibit abuse. But at the same time, you have to realize that in reality, 93 Ninety-three percent of our energy is d dependent upon coal, gas. What was the third one? Coal, oil, natural Co gas, coal, and oil, nuclear. Natural gas. Yeah, yeah. How can I forget oil yeah. in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> coal, oil, and natural gas. Right. So, um, so how do how do you thread that needle? And what are 
from an economic perspective, I mean, again, from somebody who, because I think that most people hear the talking points about climate change and they think it sounds reasonable. Why wouldn't we want to have cleaner air? Why wouldn't we want to have cleaner water? So, so, and I, and I don't know, I know that you are working to change this, but I don't think that the right has really done a great job of, of countering the argument. Yeah. And I think TPPF and uh, Life Powered is doing an amazing job of saying, no, here are the, here are the consequences of, of those decisions, making those blind, those decisions without regard to um, kind of the human cost, mm-hmm. the, the job cost, the economic cost. Um, so what are, what are the things on the other side of the scale that need to be considered in that equation? Well, it, I think it's important to understand that in terms of clean air and clean water and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, the United States is, we're already a leader. And what's missing from a lot of the conversation and especially the rhetoric, rhetoric you hear from climate change um, advocates uh, that, that are out there is that the United States, we aren't doing enough. And that just, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, when it comes to clean air, we have the cleanest air on record. And I say on record because the EPA started really monitoring the presence of traditional pollutants, things like that are tangible, particulate matter, nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide, things you do not want in the air, really started measuring this in a sophisticated way in the 1970s. And since the 1970s, collectively, those emissions have been reduced 74%. So we've been immensely wow. successful. And in, when it comes to water, there's been a, an equal level of progress where you've had clean water standards, um, only 40% of communities met a low threshold of clean water standards in 1970. Today, 90% of communities meet the highest threshold of clean water standards. And globally, we are number one in terms of access to clean drinking water. So we have um, not only the ability, but the history to prove out the concept of balanced regulations that don't pit the economy against environmental protection. Hmm. You can have both, and we in the United States do. Um, The problem is in the last administration, there was a shift away from balance, and in came climate change as the justification from their perspective Mm -hmm. to try and distort this balance to where all the costs were exorbitant um, and the tangible impact or benefit um, was very minimal, but they did all sorts of um, tricky math uh, to to distort the analyses to justify these actions. So what we did at EPA was try to come back in and establish uh, cost-benefit analyses as a premise to make sound regulatory decisions that can be understood by those outside of a f- select few of, of PhDs mm-hmm. and scientists, mm-hmm. um, and also make regulatory decisions based on the latest and greatest technologies that are actually out there, not in concept. Because if you start talking about concept, um, again, you can distort distort regulatory expectations, and that's when you get in a situation where the only way to comply on paper is to invest in things like credits that mm-hmm. you don't really know whether or not they're having a tangible impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all about balance. Um, it's all about fulfilling important missions at EPA, it's protecting public health and the environment. One of the things I often like to point out is, look, deregulatory actions in the Trump administration didn't mean setting aside the fulfillment of those important missions. It just meant doing it in a manner that it was measurable, effective, and and based on um, honest conversations about what we can do and what should be expected of the regulated community. 
you broke that down in such an easy to understand way and in a way that I haven't really heard before. Why is that message not getting out? The the message about the amount, the incredible reductions that have been made in all of our all of our pollutants and the and the progress that has been made. Why why is that message not reaching reaching the general public? And why do we have high school students saying that the world is going to end in fifteen years? Well, <laughs> because people tend to remember um, things that they fear. Um, and and if you want to sell justification for spending lots of money X, Y, and Z, you have to paint a really negative picture. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of different interests that are trying to um, make sure that they are perpetually relevant, and climate change is a really good excuse to get people to fund your related or maybe not even related entity in that respect. Um, I would also say that, and this is to your point, Republicans and people who come from a conservative ideology, we tend to focus on policy arguments that are really good and legal analysis that is really sound, um, but we aren't the best at communicating with the general public in ways that they can understand and relate to. And that's one of the reasons I started Energy 45 was to try and fill that void. Um, and one of the easiest things to do is just to, to talk about the good news story we have to tell mm -hmm. when it comes to the environment, energy, and what that actually means for the domestic economy and the global economy. So it's, um, it's a challenge that a lot of people understand, and the good news is a lot of people are really trying to figure out what do we do because perception is reality in a 24-7 yeah. news cycle, social media-infused world. And if we don't start conveying things in ways that the public can appreciate and relate to and understand, then that's going to be extremely problematic in terms of our ability to continue to influence um, the, the leadership in ways that they make the right decisions that mm -hmm. are consistent with a conservative purview of the world. Mm -hmm. So is that what is that your mission at Energy 45 is 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 communicating that success those success stories? Yes, communicating the success stories and supporting the regulatory approach of the Trump administration. Um, if you were to look up, um, you know, President Trump environment, you would think that all of the actions have been you know, letting polluters pollute and pillaging mm -hmm. the earth and wasting resources. And the reality is President Trump's regulatory actions have done more good for the environment than anything the Obama administration did. Hmm. Um, there's, if you if you want to look at some of what started panning out towards the end of the Obama administration, their focus on trying to be uh, make APA into an agency of climate change meant that they were ignoring their core mission and core responsibilities, including access to clean water. Um, think about Flint, Michigan. That happened under the Obama administration because the local officials were busy worrying about climate change instead of focusing on um, and openly communicating with local officials about the presence of lead in their drinking mm. water. You also had things like the Gold King mine spill. Um, this was an EPA contractor went to um, uh, an old mine and, um, you know, out of some measure of, of negligence, they blew the lid off of that and polluted the Animus River um, that went across multiple states and caused serious harm. And again, this was while they were busy focusing on chasing climate change and, and um, their purview of what they should do there, they were ignoring the things that they were actually meant to be focusing on and that had real consequences. So in this administration, the focus has been on core responsibility um, and fulfilling it in a pragmatic way to ensure that the EPA is an 
in fact protecting public health and the environment, not trying to be the global climate change police um, in ways that may or may not have an impact 100 years from now, but none of us will be around to know. Mm. Well, so is that why, why was the Paris, what are the Paris? Uh, Paris Climate Accord. Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. Why was that a bad thing? There are a lot of reasons. One of the, one of the main reasons was that it it uh, was ineffective, came with a range of costs, and put America's interests last. Um, when it, that's, that's really, I briefed the president on this a couple times, and one of the things he kept coming back to was, how does this impact America's workers? Um, and the regulatory actions that were proposed to comply with Paris expectations from the Obama administration, they would have um, made the cost of energy much more expensive. And if the cost of energy is much more expensive, facilities shut down, production is shut down, and workers lose their job. And all of that would have actually been sent overseas to places like China and India, where under the structure of the Paris Agreement, um, they didn't have to sign up to anything. Um, they could they could pollute at will, um, so to speak, until 2030, um, and then they would think about whether or not they could do anything to reduce their emissions profile. Uh, and so, seem very balanced. It, no, not balanced at all. Not balanced at all. And getting out of that was really important. And actually, getting out of Paris was was the um, opening salvo to the deregulatory initiatives that have really opened up the economy in the ways that we see, you know, record-breaking GDP, um, record-breaking unemployment levels, um, and wage growth and these sorts of things that we hadn't seen for years, and that was a really big part of it. Well, this episode has focused so much more on uh, uh, like poli like digging into policy than we normally do. And I, I want to ask you, so thank you. And it's because you're such an expert in the area. And I think that it's an area that a lot of us just don't know as much as we should about. So thank you for giving us a little bit of a primer on it. Was it, was it on, a, on a personal note, I mean, what was it that kind of steered you into this particular policy area? I kind of fell into it, really. Um, I had done, like I said, I'd done internships in undergrad and during law school. And one of the summers that I was in DC, I worked for the Energy and Commerce Committee during the summer of cap and trade. So cap and trade mm -hmm. was one of the first, in 2009, one of the first efforts to set a price on carbon. And I was drawn to the issue. I was really interested. I, I strove to understand what was actually going on, what it actually meant. And I was struck by two things. Um, um, one, a lot of the conversation, the public conversation, was really dishonest, and that bothered me. And two, um, it was really hard and controversial, and I was just drawn to that. Um, and so I, I had that experience and ended up working for members in the U.S. House of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate, um, where I, I really got to focus in on issues um, that were directly related to the environment and energy production. And obviously, that lends itself to um, the economy as well. And did you, you said you always wanted to, or you wanted to work in Washington. Was it like growing up, you wanted to work in politics? Or was there... I don't know. No, my, that... my original interest was in communications. And so okay. I went to undergrad for communications and studied broadcast journalism, um, radio, TV, those sorts of things. And so my uh, 
first my first internship up there, I met all the news producers on Capitol Hill, and I thought that's what I was going to be. But then um, I was noticing, observing, as you do as an intern, you're just kind of looking around and trying to take it all in, mm -hmm. that the reporters and a lot of the, the people who were on TV and doing broadcasts, they were in the hallway waiting for the decision makers to come out of the room and tell them what happened. And so I had this conversation with my dad. My dad was really influential in the career decisions that I've made. And um, I just kind of said, you know, I'd rather be in the room instead of outside the room mm. waiting to find out what happened. Yeah. He's like, well, if you want to be a, a decision maker in areas and policy, which is what I was naturally drawn to, um, go to law school, which I did, and then go back up to D.C. and try to get a job, which is ultimately what I did, too. That's awesome. I love that story. Yeah. So... A lot of people who listen to this podcast are um, wanting to know how they can get involved in policy and politics and how they can become the advocate like you are today. What is your advice for, uh, for young women who, who want to get involved? There's a lot of different ways, and if you go to Washington, D.C., um, you'll be struck by the story. Everyone has a different story of how they got to where they are mm -hmm. um, or how they're getting to where they're going. Um, but I, I think one of the best ways is, you know, at the local level, if you're interested in politics, um, your congressmen and congresswomen, um, and even your, your state legislators, they have local offices and you can go to and just volunteer to be an intern or volunteer to work on a campaign. Mm -hmm. And it's just, just getting involved and be willing to do whatever it takes. I mean, the biggest thing and the biggest advice I would give to anyone, really who's going to work every, anywhere, but especially in politics, is have um, a willingness to work hard and a, and a degree of humility um, to do whatever task is given to you and, and do it with whatever vigor um, or do it with a high degree of vigor, whether it is passing out flyers to talk about an issue or a person that you think is advocating where you want to be, or if it's writing a, a memo or talking points. Um, so uh, volunteering and just trying to find local ways that are connected to policy or politics, it's a good way to meet people and also figure out if you really do like it. Because sometimes mm -hmm. you have this vision of, um, uh, you know, this job's going to be great. And then you go out and you actually experience it and you're like, I don't like that at all. Sometimes you have a vision <laughs> of being a newscaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of those things too, and you end up going um, a different direction. Um, but yeah. Well, it gives me a great confidence and peace to know that there are um, just smart educated go-getting uh, women that have are working in DC uh, and it gives me great yeah confidence to know that you're you are a part of that and um, I'm looking forward to following your work at energy 45 how can people get a hold of you uh, a couple different ways you can go to my website which is www.energy45.org um, also follow me on Twitter my handle is Mississippi MG and um, I do a lot of work. Any work I do, I typically end up posting to Twitter. So that's a really good way to get in touch. Okay. And to continue learning more yes. about the, about the <laughs> subject at hand. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for giving us the lowdown on the, the energy envir and environment conversation. We are so grateful and uh, look forward to seeing everything else you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Do you have a story or a question you want answered? Send me a note at ellen at stepuppodcast.com. 
Also, give Step Up a rating and review in Apple Podcasts so we can reach and inspire more women. Don't forget to subscribe. I'm Ellen Troxclair. Thanks for listening. Now go advocate like a woman.